Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Tom Croy, today's host. Today we'll be talking to Professor Tamsin Peach about her new book, The Floating University, Experience, Empire and the Politics of Knowledge, currently on sale through the University of Chicago Press. The Floating University traces the scandals, antics and global voyages of a semester at sea that brought 500 American students to nearly 50 ports around the world in 1926, meeting Mussolini, Gandhi and Pope Pius XI. Nevertheless, Professor Peach also uses this enthralling story to analyse how Americans imagined their place in the globe during an age of empire and trusted universities, however scandal-ridden they might be, to obtain knowledge about the world around them. To introduce my guest today, Professor Tamsin Peach is an Associate Professor of Social and Political Sciences and Director of the Australian Centre for Public History at the University of Technology, Sydney. Her research focuses on the history of ideas and the global politics of knowledge, particularly within universities and other institutions of knowledge. In addition to the floating university, Professor Peach published Empire of Scholars, University Networks in the British Academic World, 1850 to 1939, with Manchester University Press in 2013. She received her DPhil from the University of Oxford and worked at the universities of Oxford, Sydney and Brunel University before taking up her present role in Sydney. Professor Peach, welcome to New Books in American Studies. Um, your first work, as I mentioned there, with Manchester University Press in 2013, Empire of Scholars, was on the British Empire. To start us off in kind of a traditional first question fashion, could you just tell us a bit about what first interested you in the story of the floating university and American studies um, as a whole? Uh, thanks. Thanks. Just to start by saying thanks, Tom, for having me. And, you know, this is a great podcast series, which I've long listened to. So it's great to be on it. Um, yes, I trained as a historian of the British Empire um, and universities in the British Empire. And I guess my interests have, for the last 15, 20 years have centred around um, power and knowledge and particularly higher education. Um and I guess the quick answer or the short answer to your question is that the sources led me there. When I was researching that first book long, long ago, I um, found in the back of a, a volume from the 1920s um, a pamphlet that advertised the floating university. It was like a one-page pamphlet. And I, you know, filed it away and I thought, what is this curious um undertaking and you know as the kind of years went on I um googled now and then and I did a little bit of research and the more I kind of um investigated the story the the sort of weirder it got and the more kind of kind of puzzling was its historiographic neglect I mean if you plug floating university into you know newspapers.com or any of the online newspaper search search engines it just explodes and really huge presence in the kind of contemporary archive and yet it was virtually undetectable in historical scholarship either on history of education or the emerging scholarship on the history of America and the world or international history 
And um, so I thought I had something to say and that, you know, really there were themes that that carried across from my earlier work on the British Empire. Uh, the social plays a big role here. So too does thinking about um, connections across space. And, and as you will, you know, find out if you read it, the British Empire uh, plays a, um, a, a pretty significant role in, um, in this story as well. So um, it was really really fun to kind of discover American history. And I hope I haven't sort of tread on a lot of toes, um, but it's been a 10 year undertaking. And, um, and I think there probably are a lot more commonalities um, as well as contrasts, but a lot more commonalities, particularly in this interwar period and ways that we can think together um, with both these empires. And that is uh, an emerging thread in kind of some of the American and the world scholarship to think about collaborative empires and, um, and empires, not, not only in competition, but also working working together great great thank you and that really comes across um as you mentioned there was a huge presence of the british empire um and the american empire or conceptions of it and struggles to conceive of it um there's so it really does come across that comparative framework which um yeah is really important in terms of the interwar period to kind of anchor this discussion in a person or an idea your first chapter traces the life and times and political and intellectual thought of James E. Lowe, who's a professor of experimental psychology at New York University. Um, could you introduce our audience quickly to Lowe, the person, his career, his influences, particularly um, in his education, and what ideas about knowledge and learning led him to be just so kind of persistent in pursuing this idea of a semester at sea? Yeah, th thanks. Um, I mean, he's a, he's a strange character, Lowe. I think he's a sort of... You know, he's characterized um as the well, he's the founder of this, but he's the man that has the founding idea for the floating university and the pamphlets and the promotional materials at the time cite him and, and celebrate him as the founder. Um but he sort of is a sort of middling kind of administrator by the end of his life. And he's not very um he, he's quite criticized by those on board when the voyage actually sails. Mm -hmm. So um and it's not giving anything away, I don't think, to say that um, the voyage is is uh, called by many or, or understood by many at its conclusion to be a failure. And so I wanted to think a little bit more carefully about Lowe and where um, where he comes from in order in order to think about the intellectual foundations of this voyage. It's it's dismissed it at its conclusion as something of a frippery a frippery, um, but I think by tracing back through Lowe's intellectual formation, his career, we learn something very important about this voyage and how central it is to that you know American pragmatism. This amazing philosophic invention that is uniquely uh, American and that comes out of the, the kind of post-Civil War period. So James Lowe, for all his later failings, is um, a boy from Eaton, Ohio, a sort of small town um, in Ohio. And he, he's, um, he's the... He, he's the child of a family marked by the Civil War. Um, his mother dies when he's young. His uncle is killed in the Civil War. He's named after that dead uncle. His father is injured and has loses an arm. So he, he um, carries around those legacies, um, you know, in, not only in his body, really. You know, he's caught. He's named after a dead a dead man. 
And he initially um, undertakes teacher training, goes to, does a, has a collegiate education at Oxford uh, University, not the one in Britain, but there's uh, one in um, Miami, uh, Ohio. And then there he kind of uh, reads some of the idealist um, and emerging psychology literature that's coming out um, of, of Harvard. Um, and But he goes into teacher education. So he, in order to kind of pay off his loans, he goes and his loans to his family members, he goes into teacher education. And after several years doing that, he saves up enough money and he borrows some money from uncles to go to Harvard to do a PhD where these heroes of his undergraduate um, study um, are, are located and are really reinventing psychology and philosophy um, or, or inventing psychology and reinventing philosophy at that very moment in the late eight, uh, 1880s and early 1890s. That's the very moment that, um, that Lowe goes to Harvard. And at Harvard, he's really thrust into a kind of social and cultural milieu that's completely different to the one he's he's grown up in. And you sort of see him, he's he's having to do a lot of jobs on the side. He tutors at Radcliffe College and Wellesley, and he's um he's he's also trying to credit culturally credentialize himself. He joins a lot of clubs and societies that that kind of he's trying to read the great books and learn about the what it is to be um a member of the cultural elite. And he he m- meets and marries a woman called Dora who um who's from a class completely different to him and when they eventually get married, you know, there's no one from his community at that wedding. So you can sort of really see him struggling to kind of um reconcile his origins and 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 achieve a new sort of socially mobile place in um in turn of the century United States. But he's also he undertakes at Harvard under the supervision of William Monsterberg and William James as well a um doctorate which is um on um sense perception. So he's kind of without going into the details of what his doctorate on, he's interested in um, in the circuits of understanding that William James is kind of trying to pioneer and in this method, this experimental method for understanding them. Um, and he ends up, you know, doing all of Munsterberg's teaching. Munsterberg is really the foundation of experimental psychology in the United States. Um, Munsterberg goes back to Germany and he, he ends up kind of working quite closely with William James, doing Munsterberg's teaching. And it's out of that um relationship and experience that he then goes off first to a, um, a normal school, which you know, are the foundations of, of later um, universities, and then to NYU, where he's one of the two professors of educational psychology at New York University, which has the oldest school of pedagogy in the United States. So what I'm getting at is that Lowe has really serious intellectual foundations that grow out of a particular moment in US history, and that's the post-Civil War context, where a whole set of thinkers and people are trying to reconstruct the the nation and reconstruct thought in the wake of this completely divisive um, war that wrenched apart families that wrenched apart sides. So how can you tread a path between idealism on the other and a kind of materialism on the other? Pragmatism is the answer in the 19 in the 1890s and 1880s. And for Lowe, it's the answer too. Great. Great. And as we say before we came on air, one of the real strengths of this work is its capacity to place 
ideologies like pragmatism, these debates about epistemology, how you get knowledge, how you obtain and verify and legitimize and credentialize your claims to that knowledge in the larger history of imperial and political uh, history. To kind of tether that to a question, um, this book contributes to what we might call um, the new international history. I believe that's um, a phrase you use in one of your footnotes for the introduction. Um, sharply elucidating the many quirks, complexities, and entanglements of interwar internationalism. The floating university in its plans and its execution always has this idea called world-mindedness, um, declaring itself to be a world-minded experiment in democratic theories of education. That phrase is incredibly persistent, and I wondered what you understood um, by that phrase, what you understood by the purposes that are being used in summoning that phrase. And why is experiencing internationalism, experiencing it precisely, not only so important to them, but so um, commercially viable, worth advertising and selling this enterprise based upon that? My God, there's a lot there. Um, so, it, it, yeah, maybe it helps to say a little bit about what democratic theories of education kind of mean at this time. Um, that's kind of a code for progressive education, um, which William, which um, John Dewey would be the kind of uh, founding light of many claimed him even though he probably wouldn't have claimed them um and dewey wanted experience to be the basis of all education he wanted he thought that students learned from what they did in and with the world uh rather than through what was kind of poured into their brains in a textbook so he dewey famously argued that every subject on the curriculum could be taught through cooking through cookery because you had to measure things out and that was maths and you had to combine them and that was chemistry and you had to think about where they came from and that was kind of animal husbandry and it was geography, you know. So it's um, so how you did things practically together experientially uh, was a foundation of, of a whole set of educational experiments in the kind of two decades or before and after the, the First World War, mostly before the First World War. And Lowe is busy doing these um, very kind of experiments at NYU. Uh, mostly these kinds of new educational initiatives are done in primary schools or kindergartens. Um, the experimental school in Chicago is the most um, famous of the ones associated with Dewey. But, um, but Lowe wants to put them in place in the university context. And in that uh, decade before the First World War, he does that through um, the extramural division of, the, of NYU, of which he's the director. So he goes to places like Wall Street, um, the Municipal Building in New York, Grand Central Station, um, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and he um, draws practitioners from those fields and gets them to teach courses to people already working in those fields on location, and he gives them university credit. This is, um, I guess, it's not... There are similar efforts taking place um, or beginnings to take place at the time through extramural divisions across the country, but it's that combination of credit with learning in place that becomes very important after the war when actually it starts in 1914, it starts before the First World War, when NYU, when Professor Lowe takes the first students overseas on a summer course. And this is really the first uh, completely understudied, um, really, it's the first study abroad, American study abroad trip, which awards academic credit. 
And then after the war, you know, 1914 is not such a great time to be to be in Europe. Um, so it takes a little while for the courses to sort of re resume after the second after the First World War. Um, but they do so in the early 1920s, and and students are are traveling are traveling to Europe uh, and being awarded credit for the work they're doing on those travels. So you can see Lowe is combining these kinds of uh, notions of ex of experiment and experience with um, university education. And so when uh, when he describes this as a world-minded experiment in de democratic theories of education, he's interested in um, in sort of taking those summer courses um, and putting them on a ship, basically. If not a if if not a summer abroad, why not a whole year at sea? Uh, through um, visiting many countries, students will learn and have their minds fashioned so that they might be better citizens of the world. Um, now, you know, into the new international historians will probably hear me say these things and think, well, Nicholas Murray Butler comes up with the concept of international mindedness, I think, before the World War in 1913. And, and that's true. And it's very possible that Lowe is being very instrumental by drawing on some of the um, the discussions around internationalism in that in those early 1920s to try and get his um his crews off the ground I completely think that's likely but i did want to think a little bit more carefully in the book about what underpins knowledge of the world because much of that new international history um i mean and in the last sort of 10 years there's been huge focus on on knowledge as part of that um, that interwar flowering of internationalism, and Nicholas Murray Butler is like at the helm of it, you know, at um, at, at um, Columbia and through the Carnegie um, Foundation, and he. Um, but but a lot of that work, that that scholarly work, has focused on um, ex inter exchanges on. Um, uh, intellectual kind of projects that kind of try to um, map or um, report. So so much of much um, much much literature has focused on on people that do knowing as well as the things that they write. but it hasn't really examined what the foundation for for knowledge claims are. And so I wanted to bring that more science and technology studies sort of informed question to uh, the new international history of this period. How do we know the world? How is knowledge of the world, the knowledge claims we make authorised in this period? And of course, expertise is one way for that to happen. And Nicholas Murray Butler at Columbia and universities across the United States are busy reinventing their universities and turning them into ex into engines for expertise for authorized knowledge but there are of course all sorts of other ways of knowing the world indeed probably much more powerful and persuasive ways of knowing the world and experience is one of them you know but so is divine authority so is cultural tradition or custom um and it's this um sort of face off it's this contest between uh, expertise and authorised knowledge on the one hand and direct personal experience on the other that I think really drives not only the foundations and the conceptualization um, and the philosophy behind the floating university, but also its fate, also why it's um, it's produced as a failure. Um, so, so, yeah. 
Great. I, I appreciate that was a <laughs> aerial and theoretical um, question. So there's quite a lot there and I appreciate you unpacking that. Um, <laughs> to move to the actual experience itself um, of the SS Rindon, the ship they hired to launch in 1926. Um, there's a really powerful section of the book where you trace the individuals coming on board, um, their backgrounds, who they are, where they come from, and really across the entirety of the United States and of varied ages. This is a really kind of capacious definition of what is a student and their attentions um, that come because of that. Um, you declare, quote, that the voyage projected an image of a largely white and wealthy, healthy and modern society to the world, modern name and scare, quote. Could you perhaps briefly detail for listeners who joined the voyage, who didn't or couldn't, and and why they couldn't or could join the voyage? Thank you, yeah. Um, well, there were um, there are about 370 students, college and preparatory, maybe there was about 40 preparatory students on board, 370 students all up, 50 faculty, um, 230 or 240 crew which is a lot and also then about 130 older travelers um and i'll say a bit more about them in a in a minute so it was a sort of was a, a mixed kind of uh passenger list in in that there were you know 19 to 17 to 21 year olds and then 130 you know older people i think the first thing to say is that they're all white um and there is a a distinct policy of racial exclusion that is driving this. Um, there are black students that um, that apply. Um, w. E. Du Bois gets involved. You know, there, there is uh, at, at, which forces the kind of cruise organisers to to make this statement about racial exclusion quite explicit. It was incredible to kind of come across that material actually. Um, and initially. Um, and the other thing to say is that of those sort of 500 passengers, 370 students plus, um, you know, 130 or so um, older people, there are 450 men and about 50 women. Now, initially the voyage was planned as an all-male student-only cruise, but as the due date um, loomed, um, the numbers of, of enrolments were, were insufficient to, to kind of cover costs. And so the kind of floodgates were open first to women students and then more generally to kind of older, quote, educationally minded travellers. Um, so this sort of, you know, as you say, there are tensions that emerge between these different groups on, on board. Um, I think the other thing to say about the composition of who's on the ship, and I mentioned those 240 um, crew, is that they are all white too, with one or two exceptions that we might talk about later. Um, they're all white too, and that's really unusual in this period. It's largely because the Rindum is a Dutch-owned owned ship and uh, they're staffing their crew. That It's a Holland-American line ship. They're staffing their crew with um, with white, mostly Dutch um, seamen, and that's a deliberate policy on behalf of the Holland America Line who've experienced quite a lot of labour problems with um, or protests, strikes um, with um, seamen, crewmen um, in, in, the, in recent decades. But it does play into this notion of America as a mostly white. I mean, America's not mostly white, but it, that's the image it is projecting to the world with this voyage. 
Um, and the women are part of what it is to kind of project an image of, of modernity too. They've got bobbed hairs, they're flappers everywhere they go. They're red, red, red as flappers. They dance the Charleston on command or on request. Um, they smoke cigarettes, they swear, and um, um, and they're going to university, which is itself um, relatively unusual in some of the places um, the ship is docking. I think the other thing to say about this um, passenger list is that it's not the super elite that are on this ship. I mean, although the students come from every state in the country, and that is important in a different way because I think it's the first time for many of them that they leave their home state and encounter people from other parts of the United States. So the nation is absolutely being produced on board this ship. But these are upper middle class students. Um, only about 14% of them are from the Ivy, Ivy League institutions. You know, about a quarter are from liberal arts colleges, you know, maybe 40% are from land grant or public universities, and there's a bunch that I couldn't I couldn't find where they were from. But um, there, a lot of them are from the Midwest and the South. And I think what they're doing is, but these are still expensive um, tickets. Like I, I think I did a comparison, I think it's about 2,500, and the equivalent today is maybe 44,000 US dollars. So that, see, bearing in mind that tuition at, tuition at many, you know, you, you major universities is probably about half that, tuition and rent. So um, th they're expensive, but they're not the culturally elite. They're the new upper middle class who are going on this voyage because they want to get the cultural credentialization that is already possessed by the elite. And, in fact, it's really interesting to hear the, the pre presidents of, of some Ivy League universities um, writing to the kind of all cruise organisers saying, oh, our students don't need to go on this. They, they go to Europe anyway. Um, and I think that's really telling about who this is proving attractive to. Grace, Grace of this, um, this white middle class, um, let's use that term, uh, student body gets into a lot of um, antics, let's call them. It's subject to a lot of media interest. It's subject to, um, despite the belief of the organisers, that kind of the group environment would dissuade bad behaviour, immoral behaviour. There's still a lot of it going on. To quote some of the headlines you used throughout your text, um, Sikh lesions startle Japan with rum orgy. Floating university lands in rickshaw wreck, cut-ups, powder, Buddha's knows it's a lot and there's a lot there and i can see um how as you said at the beginning newspaper.com must have you know blown up when you typed in this phrase um this again apologies if this is a kind of broad question but what could we infer through such colorful headlines about broad understandings concerns let's call them um of youth and youthful behavior and and gender on the part of those um 50 or so women in early 20 20th century and interwar america yeah i mean Reading those headlines, you'd think that kind of American youth on college campuses um, in the United States were extremely studious. And I think the first thing to kind of remind ourselves is that they absolutely weren't, that the kinds of antics that students were getting up getting up to on the ship um, were standard behaviour, really, across college campuses in the United States. And it might be worth fleshing out what some of those 
antics were. I mean, they were definitely reported in sensationalist terms, but the students did encounter alcohol is middle of prohibition and alcohol is a major attraction and they get drunk a lot. And sometimes that um, causes real problems and even verges on diplomatic problems. In Japan, they're particularly badly behaved and um, the American ambassador describes some of the um, events as the worst diplomatic incident since the, in the last 15 years. Now, um, so that's the kind of powdering the Buddha's nose and the um, getting put in prison and crashing the car and drinking sake from the shrines, you know, on the railway line along the route to Nikko. Um, but the other sort of major theme or, or issue around which scandal um, kind of att- attaches is uh, gender relations and particularly the kind of romantic liaisons between students um, on board. And, you know, the press kind of like to report that there's anywhere between nine and 12 engagements and um, and it was a constant cause of, of speculation. And, in fact, the cruise leaders ended up splitting very publicly in when the ship got to Rome over this question with some of them arguing that the next voyage should be men only and others of them arguing that it should be um, co-ed and, in fact, two separate organisations, you know, um, grew up out, um, reflecting these positions trying to organise a, a second cruise. Um, now there is as much as I said. There's as much there's as much nooking as one of the students um, on board calls it um, on campuses at home. There's as much drinking too. Um, so what's going on here? Um, what's going on? I, I think two things are going on. First, the um, students are experimenting. That's what they're doing. They're having a good time experimenting in the ways that students do and. I think undoubtedly they're learning a lot in the process. It's not the ways that their teachers think they should be experimenting, and it's certainly not the ways that the American public think they should be experimenting. So why do, do, well, maybe the American public is one question, certainly not the way the American press think they should be experimenting. So what's going on with the American press? That's the second question. This is 1926. This is sort of the period in which the American newspapers had have formed these national conglomerates. So news is now circulating around wire networks across the nation and then being published the same stories or virtually identical stories be published in, in different newspapers across the country. So what's attractive to those newspapers and those wire, wire associations is celebrity gossip, sport, scandal. And the floating university is a complete gift to these newspapers because it offers all of that and it gives the local newspapers a local angle because with students coming from states all over the United States, they can say, and our very own Dessa Skinner, you know, is uh, is on board this ship. So it's possible to sort of ground this um, general story about the nation abroad in a, a very specific um figure and a, and a connection. I think, though, and I sort of try and make some of these speculations towards the end of the book, something else is going on as well in that 
uh, the the sheer volume um, of the press coverage that the that the ship is getting, and that is to do with an anxiety, a kind of latent anxiety about the f- America's fitness, the United States' fitness to assume its international role. Are we ready to um, replace the British Empire to succeed it? Do we have the kind of cultural muscle? Um, are our youth robust enough to, to represent us on the world stage? Um, so I think underneath these kind of quite salacious stories of scandal, we can read something much deeper about America uh, in the interwar period. Great, great. And it's the voyage, the way it is designed, as you very well map out. Um, it, it's designed so that these students first upon leaving the United States and meeting all these folks from all these different states and going on this voyage first encounter areas of the world where the US has um in a phrase you often use kind of the tentacles of empire its presence is there its footprint is there another word you use a lot um you argue in chapter five this is um that um the Wyndham not only, as I say, followed those and went to those, but actually was productive of it, was quite deeply entangled in making the world it was learning to know. How does this story and how has, I'm particularly interested, given your research um, and your past background in the history of the British Empire, how does it alter our understandings, your understandings, let's call it, um, of American empire or nuance them or change them or lead them in certain directions? Okay, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I probably have two little uh, historiographic um, objectives here. One is to bring the interwar period into view in our understandings of American empire, and which it's sort of the interwar period kind of gets underplayed in. It's not it's not absent entirely, but it kind of gets underplayed in in histories of American um, America in the world. Uh, and secondly. Uh, my other little objective, which I, you know, I think characterizes is present in all my work, is to bring higher education and universities into the center of our of the ways we think about politics, international relations, and even um, ec- the economy and commercial relations. They're not mar- a marginal story that sits in histories of education departments. They're there and are crucial to the ways we understand how power reproduces itself in the 19th and 20th centuries. So that sort of plays out in this book in a couple of ways. Um, I think, you know, first it shows how that post-1945 projection of US power was, was founded upon the international relationships of the interwar period, and those are financial, they're commercial, they're cultural, and they're military. Um, and, you, you know, I guess one of the reasons I wrote the book as I did was I wanted to sort of show through story rather than you know, just throw through this story of students going around the world, just how extensive that footprint of American presence is in the interwar period. The students run into newspaper journal journalists who are editing Japanese newspapers from you know, who are members of the fraternity at the University of Missouri. They run into Standard Oil representatives in the bars. Sort of half the way around the world, they see the U.S. Navy escorting the ships in various guises. The kind of commercial, sheer commercial power of the U.S. dollar is kind of an, gives them a purchasing power that they, I think, are a little shocked by and then become quite accustomed to. Um, there's American experience 
you know, American Express is sort of a bit like their their um their embassy. You know, they check in there, they go there for the gossip, they find out where the American hairdressers is. Like there is an incredible presence of um various forms of American power. And they're shocked when they go to places like Shanghai and um and Salon, um Sri Lanka to find that many of the students they meet have in fact already studied in the United States. So there's this incredible sort of cultural um, power as well. But secondly, um, I think this focus on the interwar period also shows that college students um, were commercial and pseudo-diplomatic actors. They weren't just cultural intermediaries. They're, and I've just mentioned above fraternities at the University of Missouri, like fraternities actually play a big kind of a like minor but constant undertone in this story you know it's these really thick college cultures of sociability that are extended abroad and they play a huge important hugely important role in all kinds of of business um and so i think you, you know one of the things i'd like from this book is to encourage historians to to think a lot more carefully about the cultural formation of this generation um because it is, I think Robert Dean makes this point in that book on Imperial Brotherhood. This is the generation that leads the post-war nation. Um, and so so we really need to think about what fashions them, what what, what kind of cultural credentialization they come with, uh, and also what their anxieties are. And and so I hope that that's, that's what this book um, in, encourages historians of American empire to do, to think along these various lines, which are actually quite common now in the study of the British empire um, and how they, they iterate in those, in those two decades in the 1920s and thirties um, in ways that aren't isolated or mapped off. They are entangled in what comes before and what follows afterwards. Great, great. Um, and it's, it's worth saying it's at the end of the, in trying to get the spirits across to the academy this work will offer a fantastic teaching resource these chapters um that we're talking about here particularly chapter five and six that detail the voyages the reactions of the students the scandals all of this they really package all those kind of theoretical interventions in a really um accessible and exciting manner um all the way down to undergraduates so that's that's really exciting to kind of um have that potential in a book um I kind of asked about how doing this project um, altered your understandings of American Empire. Perhaps as an analogue to that, I'm wondering, as these students visit these sites, as they see um, basically the entire world that is covered um, by this voyage, how how do they grapple with themes like empire, nationalism, communism to some extent? It, it, it seems incredibly significant when you particularly bring up that point that these are the people who run the world in 20 years. Right. What are the through links um, there? Does this kind of open up their mind as they intended, or do they try to um, constrain or come to terms with um, some of the big debates that are going on out there? I appreciate that's quite a long question. Yeah, I mean, in, in, thank you. Yeah, look, there's so much to say about that. Um, the, what they learn is empire. That's what the students ultimately learn. They 
they don't all start out as under, as thinking of themselves as in, as imperialists, but by the end of the voyage, they associate internationalism with uh, with empire, and they're very explicit about that. Um, and in some ways, perhaps given what we've just been talking about, that's not that surprising, um, because the world they actually experience is one fashioned by American power. It's not. There are attempts to have you know, genuine encounters with Japanese students and and I'm not underplaying that, but the power of the American, you know, there's this brilliant anecdote from a passenger aboard uh, a Japanese ship that is proceeding around the world in the same route as the floating university but a few days ahead of it. And he, and he is American on board this ship and he says the prices go up by 30% the minute the ship arrives in town, right? So the world that they're encountering is one uh, that is that is composed, that is manufactured, as probably all the worlds we encounter are. Their opinions of these students on board, what they learn from the world is, and it's worth saying that students are doing proper curriculum, right? They're enrolled. I know we're not talking about this now, but they're enrolled in classes, they sit exams and they get marks and they get credit for those marks, right? So this, and it's through some of those classes that that um, ideas about empire are produced, but, but more so they're produced in some of the extracurriculum. The library and the reading list that are assigned in advance of every port, Rudyard Kipling is on that list. Right? The Binnacle newspaper, which is a student-run newspaper, which is produced every day that the ship is at sea, um, contains enormous amounts of commentary that um, that that makes sense of what's happened in that port that preceded that the students have just left. And then there are these things called student forums that emerge, which are kind of whole ship discussions, and they they all often take place. Uh, for example, when the ship leaves the Philippines or when it leaves Japan or when it leaves India. So it's a kind of way of having a whole ship discussion about this very concept of colonialism. And they're led by the governor, the former governor of Kansas, um, Henry Allen, who is a newspaper magnate himself and deeply, well, He's an advocate of American empire um, in in the formal sense as well as the informal sense. Uh, so so the student's opinion is fashioned by these various um, forums, but it's also shaped by the route that the ship takes. So you sort of mentioned that briefly. The ship sails west from New York, which means it goes down to Cuba through the Panama Canal up to Los Angeles and then across to Hawaii. So it takes in the American nation, the emerging American nation, Hawaii is not officially a state yet, and its colonial peripheries before it encounters the rest of the world, right? And, and some of those places, Los Angeles, Hawaii, Panama, are understood through many of the tropes that you know scholars have written about um, at length. This is a kind of engineering masterpiece, reclaiming um the malaria-ridden um, um, isthmus or the kind of deserts of, of Los Angeles. And then they arrive in Japan. They counter a nation on the rise, uh, with becoming its own imperial power. Then they go south through um, Shanghai, can't go to China because there's a massive civil war going on, so they have to change their plans there. Then down south through the sort of um, 
uh, Hong Kong, so the British Empire proper is encountered. Um, they go all the way down to the Dutch East Indies. The Philippines are taken in, so American colony, and then up to um, in India. Oh, well, first to um, to Thailand, to say what is then called Siam, to Thailand, um, India, up through Aden, through the Suez Canal, to Egypt, to the whole Holy Land, to Palestine, then around the Mediterranean, taking in the southern Mediterranean, uh, and then up through the north to um, the north of France, uh, so Paris, Berlin, and then up to Scandinavia. And only then do they get to the United Kingdom where they're all relieved to speak English again. And then they go back across the, the Atlantic to the to the, um, to the United States. So the key thing here is that in Sailing West, they first learn about America and the kind of frontier, the American frontier that is now extending beyond the kind of continental United States. Then they encounter kind of racial diversity in Hong Kong and then they land in Japan, a, a, like a, a, a non-white nation on the rise. And then they hit. So after that, Japan, threat, you know, in some ways deeply threatening. Then they land in, in um, Shanghai and, and Hong Kong. And in Hong Kong, they're deeply impressed by um, British power. They're also deeply and troublingly impressed by Dutch rule, you know, far better, many of them say, than what we're doing in the Philippines, which is trying to educate um, the Filipinos. Uh, and then and only after all of that do they get to, to Europe. So it's a sort of route that, that helps them or lets them um, place themselves as enlightened kind of quote-unquote liberal uh, rulers uh, against the sort of forms of imperialism of other European powers, but deeply appreciative of them. Um, and when they when they get there to to Europe, um, well, first it sort of even begins a bit before that in um, in Palestine. Um, so I sort of look in depth a bit at, at Palestine and the, the sort of biblical sites, um, Paris. Um, the Western Front, of course, which is just a, still, you know, they visit the graves um, of the Western Front. And then they go to um, Edinburgh where they they go to visit Walter Scott country. And Scott has this kind of hugely, he's uh, a life in the United States long, that you know, that is alive and kicking long after no one's reading him in, in Britain anymore. And then and then Shakespeare in, in Stratford. So, you know, at these and it happens at other sites too, but in these places, what they what they really do is they project America onto them. So they they find in them a kind of antecedents, um, a sort of lineage um, that that roots their new settler nation in the old world, uh, and also gives it a trajectory and legitimates its new international position. So it's. And I think they do this in part because they have encountered the kind of global politics of um, of the rest of the world. And, of course, you mentioned communism briefly. Communism is already functioning as the bugbear for, you know, all that's wrong and it's part of the reason Mussolini is great and, um, and certainly there's a lot of love for Mussolini on board, not least by Henry Allen. But, it, but it's also an occasion perhaps to say that the, that although you know, this is the major note sounded by most of the students and staff on board. There are really interesting points of divergence. And 
um, one of the most interesting is the 10 students that leave the ship in Colombo, which is in Sri Lanka, and travel overland to Calcutta, which is a mammoth journey. And they they do that in order to try and find Gandhi. And they rather remarkably managed to find him at a railway station outside Calcutta at a village. Um, And when they get back to the ship, one of them writes a really remarkable article in the Binnacle newspaper in which he compares the Indian nationalist movement, Swarajists is, is the term he used, to the American revolutionaries. Both are opposing Britain and wanting to kick kick them out um and you know so so even as even as henry allen is championing um mussolini and you know um raising the bugbear of communism there are students on board that are interested in alternate views um and i think too are expressing some of the hesitancies about america's as i was saying before america's fitness to to assume this role on the world stage yeah race race um yeah and it's it's worth saying this um yeah the example of Mussolini really came to mind there because it's by no means um universally condemning his example and that kind of shows the extent to which they're thinking about state building and developing a nation a comparative um perspective and it's really interesting at the end um when you talk about the careers these folks later on to have a lot of them are involved in those kinds of projects of course, the story isn't just about the students. You mentioned at the beginning there were 240 members of crew from the Netherlands. Um, in Chapter 7, you try to offer what you call a global microhistory, detailing experiences below deck and on the docks um, that provide us with a perspective that contrasts with what you call the shipboard perspective. Um, perhaps briefly, could you provide us with an example of a story that stuck out to you from those varied experiences? Yeah, thanks. I wanted to recognise that there are other ways of knowing um, that the ship is producing. It's not just these rich Americans. Um, You know, the ship has all sorts of meanings for those who encounter it. And perhaps the most, um, the one that comes most to mind is is, is Leonard Aliwane, who is, who is recruited when the ship gets to Los Angeles. Uh, he's a Filipino. He's born in the Philippines. And by 1926, he's migrated to Los Angeles as an indentured laborer. He's worked um, on some plantations for a while. And then he's found his way into kind of, um, he even works on a movie set in Hollywood for a while. But he he, he sees this advertisement in the window of a, a, a shop to join um, as a laundryman aboard the Holland America Line. By this time, all the Americans are complaining that their laundry isn't coming fast enough. So the, the ship agrees to hire a few more people in Los Angeles. So there are about 11 Filipinos that join, 11 or 12. And he is one of them. And he leaves an incredible oral history in nineteen um, in the 1970s in which he's talking about his experiences aboard the ship as well as his life more broadly. And, and for him, I mean, he remembers it to be what he calls a scandal ship, quote, unquote, but he gets all the details of what constitutes education wrong and really what he's most concerned about with the voyage is the amount of money he can make off the students and the way he can sort of fleece them for for tips and he works out he can take their laundry to ports when he when they dock and charge them an enormous amount and get it done for super cheap um 
in port and the rest of the time he's waiting tables and so he's earning a double salary you know he's not uh he's not unclever um but but there's also um another figure if i could just talk about howard marshall briefly i mean he's one of those those people who do people listening might not know the name Howard Marshall, but they probably do remember um, who Anna Nicole Smith was. Anna Nicole Smith was a playmate uh, who, you know, had a very high profile um, marriage to a very old man in the 1980s and 90s. And that old man was Howard Marshall. He was a 14 or 15% holder in Coke Industries. He began his life as a Quaker student on board this ship and a soccer star. And I mentioned him here. Um, so, you know, he, there's a love, it's a biography that in many ways exemplifies why we need to think about this generation and their formation. But he is a soccer player and he plays on the Rindham soccer team. And the Rinders soccer, sorry, football for anybody in the Northern Hemisphere, um, the, Rim, the Rindham's um, soccer team, like its baseball team, like its basketball team, um, get resoundingly thrashed at wherever they they stop, whoever they play, and they often play university teams along the way. And this is incredibly disquieting to to the Americans because it, you know, they don't expect to be beaten by non-white bodies at their own games, and these are games that Americans have invented. And so it's a good example, I think, of how dimly and always immediately repressed you know, a perception that that those that they are meeting, those that ship is encountering, might understand them in ways different than they understand themselves, sort of gradually creeps onto the voyage. And what the students do with that sort of anxiety is, I think, also interesting and telling. Great, great. So move us towards the end then. You said at the beginning, um, and this really comes to mind now, that the story of the Rindham has been forgotten in many ways and you argue in the conclusion that that owes to the judgment that people like these new tech editors who are producing these scandalous headlines are making of the voyage the voyage as a failure and kind of the internecine struggle over whether there's going to be another voyage um, which is a whole complicated issue um but chapter eight your last chapter um of this book asks a very simple question which is did low fail you not only answer that but kind of think through what does that failure reveal what power is served by discrediting this example and this voyage as a scandalous um ridden um voyage so yeah to, to throw it back at you did low fail and what might we learn from that failure uh briefly yeah <laughs> well yeah i think that that my answer to that question is it depends what who gets to decide what counts as success and so I hope what people who read this book do is ask that question, who gets to decide what counts as success? Who gets to decide what counts as knowledge in this period and in our period too? Because the answer to that question has a history and it has a politics. And so initially it was the press but also the universities who decided, and the university is pretty, we haven't talked about them, but they dump on low New York University sacks him you know on the eve of his departure um 
that they sort of join a pylon in 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 not um, supporting the voyage um, after its return. So universities are not interested in this new model of experience joint university credit. Why? Well, they're very interested in their model of expertise, which they can charge fees for and you know, monopolise knowledge in the 20th century. But what I, and I think one of the ways we can think about this question is to ask, well, if we don't let those two entities decide what counts as success, if we ask, say, the students on board, do we get a different answer? And it turns out that we do. You know, many of those students on board, not only described in the years immediately after the cruise, it as the turning point of their lives and an incredibly influential um, year. Um, I try and trace the careers of some of them whose lives do seem to have been fashioned in the wake of the lessons of the voyage for good and for ill. So on, on that front, the Professor Lowe's cruise was absolutely a success. But I think more broadly what I want um, to say is that it's productive to think with failure and with um, experiments or entities or undertakings that are deemed failures because what failures ultimately reveal are the norms and the conventions of what counts as success. And sometimes those norms and conventions have been so naturalised um, that they're invisible. And what failure helps us do is see them and historicise them. Uh, so I think it can be a very, very productive thing to think about and think and think with, uh, particularly about knowledge and particularly about higher education, which is, after all, the world we live in and we can sometimes fail to see that it too has a history and a politics that is not natural um yeah great great um one final question there to end a traditional new books network <clears throat> excuse me fashion um as i recognize it's getting a bit late in australia um what's next for you and your research Oh, well, I haven't got a new big project, but I'm kind of working on a few things. One is a history um, or is a study of how Wikipedia produces history, um, how the past is produced on Wikipedia. Another is a history of expertise in the 1920s in Australia. Uh, and the final is um, probably quite closely connected to this project in that it's interested in all the work that's emerging recently on this sort of extractive extractive legacies, the university and extractive legacies. So trying to think across things like legacies of slavery, the legacies of um, stolen land, and um, and also questions around mining and uh, kind of what we might think of as cl uh, climate forms of capital that erode the climate and how are they entangled in the foundation of universities and um and also their power great sounds wonderful um thank you so much professor peach for taking the time to talk to us today um i recognize time zones always present um, a challenge i'm really grateful um for it and grateful for this work as i said this is a really important work because it puts these questions of knowledge production, knowledge legitimization, even at the very heart of them, on the very heart of international political history in the interwar period. And I think that's immensely valuable, particularly when delivered um, in this format that's immensely appealing to all readers, including general interest readers and undergraduates, um, for precisely all those scandals we talked about um, at the beginning. Um, so 
Athletic University, available with the University of Chicago Press, out now. Uh, Professor Peach, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Tom. It's been a real pleasure.